Welcome to my podcast, Here I Stand. I am your host, Patricia Lord, with my guest, The Aim is Simple, sharing extraordinary stories of ordinary people. I'm so excited to introduce my guest today, Precious Adams. We are here talking about champion mindsets. And if ever there was a prima ballerina with a champion mindset, it is the formidable, brilliant, dedicated, talented Precious Adams. Welcome to the show. Precious Solana Adams is one of the few world-class black ballerinas. Originally from Detroit, Michigan, she is currently a professional with the English National Ballet and for the last five years has been under the dictatorship of internationally renowned and respected Tamara Rojo. Precious has trained with the best ballet schools in the world, Bolshoi Academy, and that was in Moscow, Russia. The Princess Graces Academy in Monte Carlo and the National Ballet School in Toronto, Canada. She has received many awards throughout her career and has won the most prestigious ballet competition in the world in 2014 at the Prix du Lusoin. She won Best Contemporary Dancer, Best Emerging Dancer by the National Dance Awards Critics Circle in 2018. And prior to that was awarded a scholarship, the Catherine Zeta-Jones Scholarship in 2008 and 2009. She's been in hundreds of productions across the globe. She has worked with the best choreographers. And so my personal favorite was that she was the first black female to feature as the poster girl for the Swan Lake Ballet, which was produced by the English National Ballet last year. Why ballet? Thank you so much for having me. My um, welcome. It's, it's an honor to be interviewed by you. Oh, thank you. Um, so why ballet? That's a really good question. I don't want to say like it was like my destiny or something, but I do think like I couldn't really imagine my life going any other way. I think I always liked movement. I was always a mover and a dancer, and to be honest with you, actually, my mom always kind of had, like, this idea in the back of her mind of having, like, a really graceful daughter, and as it turned out, she ended up having graceful daughters because my younger sister's also a professional ballet dancer. Oh, wow. Yeah. But she she never, like, imposed anything on us, but I think she noticed I would always dance around the living room, so she signed me up for, I think it was, like, creative movement classes when I was, like, six or seven. From there, I just, like, really fell in love with it and just got really obsessed. And then I figured out that, oh, you could have a career as a ballerina. That was, like, a profession. Um, it wasn't just, like, something you do as a hobby. So when I was about 10, I kind of set my mind to wanting to become a professional, high-level classical ballet dancer. So how old were you when you started ballet? So you started for creative movement, but how old were you when you started ballet? It was about seven or eight. Okay. When I, like, started my first, like, ballet class. And so what I find profound is that at the age of 10, you have a very clear vision Mm -hmm. of what your future looks like. You might not even remember, but I've got to ask a question. Okay. (laughs) How did you get to that? How did you say, wow, okay, I'm going to be a ballerina, but not just any ballerina. I'm going to be a world-class, brilliant, amazing athlete. Well, 
okay, I think in my 10-year-old mind, it was just, I'm going to be a ballerina. I think the level that I wanted to achieve wasn't really established in my mind until a little bit later, but I think it was because when I was around 10, I was exposed for the first time to high-level classical ballerinas. And I just remember seeing... Where did you see them? There's two experiences that come to mind. It was, I saw the Joffrey Ballet's Nutcracker, or actually I participated in it. They usually get, like, party kids in Nutcracker. Yeah. And, like, most ballet companies do Nutcracker every winter. So Joffrey Ballet in Chicago, which is close to my hometown, Detroit, they would put on the Nutcracker every year. And so I remember seeing the ballet dancers and, like, these athletes, and they were adults, and they were grown up, and they were doing ballet. And I was like, what? Because up until that point, I'd only just thought it was, like, little kids that did after school. You played around with it. I didn't know it was, like, oh, my God. And I remember seeing, like, the athletic bodies and just being mm-hmm. like, oh, my God. It was that, and I did a, a little summer program in Massachusetts, and there was this girl who's about 18, but she was on her way to becoming a professional dancer, and just, I remember her body was just beautiful, and just the level of her, like, technique and dancing was of such a high standard, I so amazed by it, and I would say those are kind of the two moments that I knew, I was like, that's what I'm going to be, that's what I'm going to do. And how old were you at that time, roughly? Ten. Ten, yeah. wow. I think for me personally, I was introduced to ballet around 2001 through the Alvin Ailey dance group and uh, as you know internationally they travel around the world and they came to the Sadler's Wells and you know I'm a theatre buff I like you know both plays and musicals and I saw these beautiful athletes and that's the only way that I could describe them Mm -hmm. with amazing home toned body of all shapes and I was like, I need to go and see that. And it was the most emotional experience of my life because it brought me to tears. Just not only the movement, the music and the passion, the grace. And I had never seen anything like that in my life. So when I look at Alvin Ailey, they are a predominantly black dance group I look at your career and it's very what I would regard and you might tell me that I'm I've got it wrong it just seems very traditional of what most individuals would think that ballet is you know so a lot of the nutcrackers swan lake it just seems very traditional mm-hmm. how difficult was it or how easy was it for you to dance at that level Good question. I think it was only natural because pretty much I think the way I was raised was like there's nothing I can't do if I work hard and if I'm good. There's no reason why I can't do something. And I think that's always, I never really had any doubt in my mind. And some of that might have been naivety like when I was 10 years old or whatever. It was literally, it was that simple. It was like this is what I want to do, work hard and I'll do it. And it was only kind of later in my teens that I realized, oh wait, I am kind of the only black person around. Oh wait. Was this not necessarily made for me? Am I in the right space? And I started kind of questioning all of that. But then still, nonetheless, I'm perhaps I'm a little hard-headed. And I was just like, no, like this is what I'm supposed to do. And the interesting thing is, is where companies like Alvin Ailey and Dance Theater of Harlem, where those ballet companies originated from was because the black dancers couldn't exactly. infiltrate yeah. the mainstream, big, yeah. established predominantly white ballet companies and so they had to go off and make their own because it was too isolating or there wasn't enough they didn't feel like it was a space that they could occupy so then 
Arthur Mitchell went off and made Dance Theater of Harlem. Alvin Ailey went off and made his own company. And you, you kind of see that pattern repeated quite a bit. Um, there'll be like one black dancer who kind of dances in a major ballet company, whether it's Royal Ballet or New York City Ballet, for a little while, but they don't end up kind of going as far as they perhaps hoped or the career just kind of perhaps takes a different direction then they always kind of go back and go into one of the black ballet companies that's that was made for black dancers just because it was essentially a space that was made for us which is it is an interesting thing to think about and examine but yeah I think I just knew I wanted to do classical ballets for as mm. long as I could mm. my sister works for a ballet company called Ballet de Monte Carlo which was always kind of a kind of forward thinking and progressive ballet theater just because their productions are more neoclassical but you have to have really really strong classical technique and it's also a very diverse company and so in terms of like classical technique my sister is also classically trained to a same to a similar level to me but the sort of productions she does rarely involve tutus and tools it's mm. perhaps more modern and more contemporary but very classical still which is an interesting thing to think about you've worked a lot around europe mm-hmm. do you find that the European ballet companies are are more diverse or less diverse or, you know, are you able to compare or is classical ballet moving at the same space and time across the globe, in your opinion? I would say generally, yes. All the dance companies around the world are just diversifying. I think they kind yeah. of just don't have, I don't want to say they don't have a choice about it, but it's just kind of, it's the natural progression of like where things are going now. Mm. There's so many high-level dancers of all ethnicities mm. and the more they diversify the more people start to accept a diverse picture yeah. on stage yeah because i think that was kind of the other thing that made it slow in in like the 1900s for those companies to diversify and stuff was because it was like it was always just like one asian dancer or, or one mm. black dancer or like mm. one minority ethnic dancer or whatever and then it was like oh they're throwing off the picture too much because that's also one of the things about ballet it is an aesthetic art form it is about creating a vision, a picture, whatever that picture might be. But I think now that it's like companies are more diverse, everyone can kind of accept the diversity of the picture. What I was surprised about, I came to see you around Christmas performing the Nutcracker Suite. Mm -hmm. And I, as a person of colour, was really surprised that the lead was a man of colour. Brooklyn Mac. Yeah, who was amazing. And the female lead Mm -hmm. was of colour. She was... um, Yeah. Yeah, and they were absolutely fantastic. And I was quite interested. So, you know, I was looking around to see the reaction and there wasn't any, Mm -hmm. which for me, I think is really progressive because there are lots of people of colour that may like ballet that would feel completely intimidated to go and watch the ballet. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like you say, it's moved on from where it was in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And, you know, dancers are more diverse, choreographers are more diverse. And, you know, we are talented, amazing human beings that are not monolithic. And we are able to spread our fantastic talents across all genres, whether it's classical, whether it's contemporary, whether it's, you know, dancing for Alvin Ailey or Ballet Black. And so, it's changing, which is something that I didn't think that I would see in my lifetime, if I'm absolutely honest. So, you know, for me, you are one of the many amazing breakthrough artists that we have and should be celebrated. And more people should know about you, and that's why you're here. So it's absolutely wonderful. So 
we are talking about champion mindset. So for me, you are a champion. And if anybody has not seen Precious Adams perform, go to YouTube, follow her on Instagram. She's an athlete. Lots of people don't see ballerinas as athletes, but the strength that you have to command through your body in order to dance with such precision on the top of your toes mm -hmm. is formidable. And I was trying to do this <laughs> a couple of weeks ago because in my heart, I am a prima ballerina. <laughs> Reality and gravity does not support what my heart is telling me. And couldn't get on my toe tops, but got on the ridge of my toes. And it is super difficult to hold your body in balance without shaking after three seconds. Mm -hmm. What did it take in order for you to get to this stage of your career? You've heard of the 10,000 hours? No, no, no. So they've done like loads of research about people who get to like kind of the top of their field. And that's whether they're a high level athlete or a doctor or... If you count up the hours, it's about 10,000 hours. The Beatles, for example. Right. So a musician who becomes really good at their craft. It's like, it takes about 10,000 hours. And then you kind of start to master what you've been learning or training in or whatever. So it's like after 10,000 hours, then you start to like enter this like golden period of like, oh, they've honed their craft. They're kind of a master of their craft. So I like, I counted up the hours and it's true. It takes generally a minimum of like eight years of training something like between like 14 and 24 hours a week to become a high level ballet dancer. So I think I was putting in like, I mean, I was easily putting in between 16 and 24 hours a week on ballet. Wow. Over eight years, easily from the time I was 10 till 18. That's literally what it takes. There's rare cases of people who, who naturally their body has the facility already and they don't perhaps have to put in that much time or they could start a little later and still kind of get to the same place that I'm at. But yeah, Easily the 10,000 hours thing applies to me and pretty much everyone I work with, all 70 dancers in English National Ballet, all kind of did the same. It's like eight years of like ballet training. And then that's when I'm like 18. So, I mean, you saw me a few months ago. So yeah. I've been a professional for six years now. Yeah. Or this is my sixth season. So, yeah, like 13 years. And you're only seeing me now and I've still not technically peaked yet. Wow, so. you've not technically peaked. No. Oh, you my mean, goodness. I've, yeah, no. I've, there is more. I mean, I hope not. There is more brilliant. There's, I hope this isn't the peak. <laughs> but for me, so, you know, and I am not a dancer. I, I do not come from that world. But to watch you, and I think I mentioned this to you, you brought tears to my eyes. Oh. It was, for me, the untrained eye it was perfect. It was beautiful. Oh, so um, no, listen, I do not give out compliments lightly. So, you know, there is no BS here. It was, it was perfection personified. So for you to say, technically, there is so much more to come. I can't wait to see that. Yeah. And so, so for my millennials <laughs> out there, for my millennials out there, for anybody who is thinking about starting either a business or following your passion... The 10,000 hour rule applies, you know. It's, In a lot of cases, yeah. And I love that because, you know, so many people denigrate millennials saying, you know, they don't know how to put in the work. Mm -hmm. This is not your story. In order for you to be here, mm -hmm. you're putting the work. And for me and for many that watch you, 
it's paid off a million times. It's paid off a million times. So there is no excuse, you know, there is no excuse for anybody out there who tells me that they can't. Yeah. And so I think <laughs> my kids are going to hate you. <laughs> so I think uh, for me and my children, it'll be like, I want to do this. I'll be like, have you done your 10,000 hours? <laughs> when you put your 10,000 hours in, I'm going to know that you're serious. <laughs> so this, no, oh, I love that. I absolutely love that. It's funny, I actually have to say that I think that's why it was quite easy for my my mom and my dad to support me because they could see that I had like this crazy like drive and obsession with dance from when I was like 10 or 11 they were like okay she wants to go to ballet school we'll pay for her to go to ballet school whereas like I think my brother while he was trying to figure out what he wanted to do I think at one point he was like oh I want to be a basketball player and my mom was like okay well let's see you start putting in some time are you doing drills are you working with your coach are you mm. working as hard what are you doing what are you doing he wasn't like as dedicated to where yeah. I'm like I need someone to drive me to ballet class I can't miss a day yeah I cannot miss a day I have to do four hours of training today I have you know and it was like champion mindset champion mindset and I think because I was so hell-bent on it and you're so obsessed with it I think that's why my parents are like oh okay yeah she's she's ready to put in the time yeah <laughs> she's gonna put in the work so yeah I honestly believe like you kind of can't fail if you really put in the the time, yeah, the dedication. And you don't the, bullshit yourself. I think if you don't kid yourself about the work that you're putting in, yeah. the effort you're putting in, and if you're honest. That is just, yeah, th that's the nugget for me, if you're honest. Mm -hmm. If you're honest with yourself about how much time and effort and energy and commitment that you are willing to put into the project, mm -hmm. then you're going to get to the other side. Mm -hmm. And so, for me, that works with, can I do this today? Am I able to commit to six hours of writing, you know? And the answer, the honest answer for myself is absolutely. Mm -hmm. You may not be able to do it through the day, but you can definitely do it through the night, right? Mm -hmm. So it's how honest we're willing to be. Oh my gosh, I love talking to you. <laughs> this is absolutely great. So you have your champion mindset for me from age 10. I read somewhere, or I heard somewhere, but it's in my brain, that you left home and went to Toronto mm -hmm. to go to school, but also to hone your craft mm -hmm. yeah. at the age of 11. And your parents were happy for you to do that? I have to say, my mom was. My dad was a little sceptical. Because I okay. think he just, in his mind, it was like, what, ballet? It, what, it costs how much? What? No. In my mom's mind, she's like, look at her, she loves it. Like, yeah. Look at how hard she works at it. And I think my dad was like, they just want our money. Yeah. <laughs> he was like, they tell everybody they're special. <laughs> Which there's probably a little bit of truth to that. But I think, I think that was enough for me to believe it and be like, ooh, maybe I could make something of this. Maybe I am good enough to become a high-level dancer, you know? And my dad was like, no, they just want our money. And my mom was like, no, Chip, come on. <laughs> like, let's support her. And it kicked off from there. So what that tells me is that you were good you were encouraged, and through that encouragement, you were able to believe in yourself mm -hmm. that you could do it. Yeah. I have a complex like anybody else, though. I have to say, I think dancers have probably the most extreme complexes about themselves. Explain. So, like, you were, when I said, I don't think I've peaked yet, it's like one second, it's like, oh, my God, I'm so talented. This, I'm awesome at what I do. And literally the next second, I'm like, I am not good enough. I'm a failure. I need to work harder. It's so, it's so bizarre, like, the psychology of it, because 
also what I do is it's passion driven. It's also subjective. So mm-hmm. you might really love my dancing, whereas other people might find it like, oh, she's not consistent. She's not precise. She's not whatever, whatever. And you can compare me against the other thousands and thousands of ballet dancers in the world. So that's kind of the other interesting thing about it. It's not like a footballer, like, oh, they make a goal success. It's also an art form. I'm an athlete and an artist, so it's very subjective as well. Yeah. Which is kind of the interesting thing. So, I actually think that we all suffer from that level of crisis in confidence. Mm-hmm. We interviewed Maggie Alfonsi, who is a, you know, an absolute trailblazer in women's rugby, Saracens flanker, champion with Saracens, and has won a World Cup. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she said to us, "Sometimes I have imposter syndrome." And you're just like, how can you, you know, who knows your craft, is absolutely brilliant at it, could ever suffer from imposter syndrome? Mm-hmm. I suffer with it with my writing. You know, I write a book. I'm like, oh, my God, this is amazing. And then when I put it out, there's like, no one's going to like it. Oh, my God. Oh, my goodness. You know, oh, look, you know, I didn't, I didn't phrase that right. So I think we all suffer from it. And I think the beauty of today is listening to your honesty because there will be, you know, hundreds, millions of people that will listen to this the world is listening, I keep telling myself that the world is listening, that will hear you and know that they're okay mm-hmm. because you have the same level of anxiety as the rest of us. Mm-hmm. The difference is, is that you've made it. The difference is, is that you did your 10,000 hours. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you're going to get most probably, you know, an army of people trying to, you know, a lot how many hours they've they've got today, and you know, I, and I think I'm I'm at least five thousand short. So this is this is a a very good barometer to test myself with. If you would like to get in contact with me, please visit my website on www.authorpdlord.com. Facebook, you can find me on Author PD Lord, Instagram PD Lord, and Twitter PD Lord. Currently, I have books available called The Journey, available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble, Kindle Books and eBooks.